0: listening to episode 1 of the Primrose Chronicles. This episode is called The House at 4425. But let me start by asking, you old enough to recognize and maybe even be doing karaoke to that intro melody? Primrose Lane, Life's a Holiday on Primrose Lane, Just a Holiday on Primrose Lane with you. Well, in 1959 when Jerry Wallace re- released his recording Primrose Lane on the Decca record label, The houses at the south end of Primrose Avenue on the near northeast side of Indianapolis were already about 10 years old. Located about a mile and a half east of the Indiana capital city's north-south thoroughfare, that would be U.S. Highway 31, known to the locals as Meridian Boulevard, there was a pristine but nondescript collection of one-and-a-half-story cookie-cutter homes nestled between 44th and 46th Street. In that sense, it was the suburban trailhead for the residential street that ran Due north came to a dead end at 62nd Street and Broad Ripple Park. It was in the summer of my second grade year that we became Primrose residents. New home, new neighborhood, new neighbors, new school, brave new world. Ready or not, here came the Youngs, Don and Dorothy and their five youngins, Marty, Nancy, Dave, Jim, and Bill. Primrose Avenue then became the street of legends as the next 50 years found some portion of the Don and Dorothy Young clan living at 4425 third house south of 45th Street on the east side, and providing memories galore for the five kids who were raised there. Five kids, same residence, but Primrose was a very different place for each of us. We all have verbally chronicled our own recollections with our age friends and the changing landscape of northeast Indianapolis with little overlap except siblings and parents. As the oldest of the brood, this episode launches a series of podcasts which is my own effort to keep alive the amazing neighborhood that I called home. Oh yeah, hi. My name is Marty Young. I'm a septuagenarian curmudgeon with stripes of a contrarian, living in Utah but from the Hoosier State, growing up in Indianapolis, the crossroads of America during the 1950s and 1960s. In truth, as a collegiate at the turn of that latter decade, I could not wait to get out of Naptown and see the world. As I sought and settled, visited and vacationed in many parts, first of the U.S. and later around the world, I soon found my thoughts and recollections turning to a faint longing to be back home again in Indiana. Those longings in turn led to stories that I shared with hundreds of kids as well as my own in the chapels of four different Christian schools, of which I was principal out west in California and a headmaster down south in Georgia. Seemed like every time I spoke in chapel, my go-to for a story was an event for my childhood, even as I shared some biblical principle. I'm not sure that the principles always took. But even now, 50 years have not completely erased stories of what, in hindsight, I remember as a magical childhood in a fanciful neighborhood during simpler times that I am now determined to share with whoever listens in to any part of this series of podcast episodes. If you're sitting in on this initial reminiscence, it's probably as a favor to me because I invited you to join in this inaugural offering. I hope you'll stick around. As we close, I'll be sharing my contact information. I'd love to have your candid feedback and recommendations on what I could do the next time I post. Today is more of a necessary travelogue to set up the series. I'll introduce you to the residents that I called home, for in a way, you'll at least see it in your mind's eye and catch a little of the joy of the young family that we had doing life with the folks living within that couple of blocks of Primrose as the episodes unfold. My and title of this project for seven years has been The Primrose Chronicles, but I realize now as I'm compiling what I wrote and now beginning to share it orally, it's not really a chronicled work at all. I looked up the definition. A chronicle suggests a factual account of a historical period told in order of occurrence. Well, the way this effort is unfolding, a better title might be the Primrose Trail Mix, because every week I'll reach into that bag of memories, and who knows what variety of fruity, nutty, sweet thoughts will come out by the hands full. Future stories are likely to erupt from the scattered thoughts of this aforementioned septuagenarian. Some from my elementary years, some from junior high, and still others from high school. You'll hear about the Path, the Bend, the Fairgrounds, Ralston, 49th Street, Stegs, Estridge's, Arsenal, 91 Ripple, Pops, Jubilee City, and dozens of other landmarks in no particular order. In those locations, I'll recount various tales from various times, the kind of stories legends of a childhood are made, what all these eras and locales have in common, is that they serve as an animated backdrop for the yarns of this podcast stream. I can only hope to do them and the characters doing life with me in these varied times justice. Speaking of characters, you'll be introduced or reintroduced to dozens that I hope I will make memorable through my depictions. If you're going to stay with me in this venture, I need to extend a caveat. After 50 or 60 years, I could not begin to effectively track down all of those who appear in large part are in cameos as I share my experiences and then further to get their permission to share these stories. Instead, I've chosen to thinly veil identities by outside the family, changing names just enough to hopefully not be held liable for defamation, but so that those in the know can probably ascertain who is being portrayed. I would further ask that if there are any offenses stemming from my tellings, that you would remember my age, my oncoming senility, and not judge my motives too harshly. With said warnings and caveats in place, I want to use this first episode to show you around, at least in your mind's eye, show you around my primrose home. With the end of World War II abroad and the war efforts stateside, Much-needed housing became a critical part of the war recovery for the thousands of GIs victoriously returning home to sweethearts and young wives. All were eager to go on with their lives and capture their portion of the ever-brightening American dream. Across the U.S., architects met those needs for new family dwellings with designs for planned communities and maximized use of land. From this common element came the subdivision. In most areas of America, upon purchase of a parcel of land as small as 10 acres, a developer or development company could present county or city officials eager for tax revenue with a building plan of multiple single-family homes. The plan required the placement of electric poles, water mains, sewer lines, street locations, and, of course, the layout of home parcels, how large and how many. Speed of completion? And the cost-effectiveness of mass purchases of multiple identical materials led to the resulting sameness that described the suburbs. In the case of Primrose Avenue, maps of Indianapolis drawn as late as 1941 showed the street the same coordinates when the area was known as Bel Air. In fact, there was a residence at 4425 Primrose that was apparently raised by the developer, preparing for the new and more densely populated neighborhood that would be named Maple Downs by the builders, eager to attract families escaping the city confines with the perceptions of a country vibe. The name Maple Downs, though, was not just drawn out of a hat. Years before, maple trees dotted the area all the way down to the state fairgrounds and Downs because of a small stable and cinder racetrack that kept horses boarded and exercised for events taking place at the same fairgrounds that were prominent features. Charming, huh? Anyway, Maple Downs was representative of these new subdivision construction design ideas. Like its counterparts dotting the landscape of 50s America, each lot was just over a tenth of an acre with a Home footprint slightly over 10% of that. What these numbers meant to the new homeowners, so eager to start their families, was a family home with a front yard and a backyard for raising those kids. And those features were very attractive to young people who had grown up in row houses and duplexes near the center of town. Yards birthed the whole new industry of lawn care products and certainly offered a variety of tasks for the budding homeowner. Each Primrose home featured two saplings per lot between the home and the street, set identically in each yard, diagonally front to back. There might be two or three plans alternating along any row of homes, but all had the same outside dimensions, about 720 square feet of ground-level living space. Each property had a driveway connecting the side door of the house to the street, and by design, two homes shared a double-wide drive. Many gravel, some asphalt, all leading to the backyards or to single-car garages. The driveway configuration produced its own difficulties as more and more wives learned to drive and families added second cars. Invariably, the car and the driver that wanted to leave was further up the driveway and blocked by the second family car. To extricate the desired car from the parking place, A couple would have to start both cars, pull one onto the street, waiting until the departing car was out and on its way before pulling all the way up. This likely meant the exercise being repeated later in the day or the next morning. A riskier but less labor-intensive effort was to merely stagger the car's locations in the driveway. When the car closest to the house needed to come out, the driver would back into the other half of the driveway, the neighbor's half, continue that side of the drive pass their own car, and exit onto the street. While good in theory, neighbors learned that it was not wise to park plants or riding toys along either side of the driveway. Some neighbors chose the pastime of bringing squashed plants and broken toys to the back door of the offending home and asking, what are you going to do about this? After discovering that the answer was generally, uh, sorry, but nothing, they took matters into their own hands, planting hardier bushes and letting them grow a little wider over the drive, assuring scratches to offending parties. These incidents were exceptions rather than the rule. As folks learned to be good neighbors, but in a few severe examples, State Farm had to be there. The young domicile had one more notable addition. To the left of the front porch stoop was a very defined concrete tile patio, extending to the end of the house and out about eight feet initially covered with a canvas canopy held up by two metal poles. But over the years, Hoosier winds and storms, along with the poles used as children's twirling posts, the patio became a mere slab for adult gathering, but gather the people did. Several stories and anecdotes describing Primrose life will place the patio as an end destination or backdrop for Twilight Yard games, summer and fall holiday celebrations, and in one case, even a safe zone for at least one harrowing teen year's escape. I hope and intend these tales to find their ways into future episodes. At this point, it seems pretty certain if this continues. Anyway, that's the layout for the front yard. If you went around back, yards were fenced with three-foot-high chain-link fencing attached to whitewashed 2 by 4 top rails and 4 by 4 fence posts set about eight feet apart. Those fences proved, on Primrose anyway, to be the perfect height for keeping toddlers and small pets confined, but not too tall for stay-at-home moms to talk over while catching up on neighborhood happenings, or for older kids to easily scale in pursuit of an errant ball, frisbee, badminton birdie, or just as a shortcut to a friend's house. A double-hinged gate opening in the middle Usually was wide enough for a vehicle to pass through, providing backyard entrance from the driveway. Within these rear boundaries were small gardens, trash-burning fire pits, swing sets, and poles with clotheslines stretched between. With so many homes having so many kids, lines almost daily in nice weather displayed rows of wet laundry and bedding, attached with wooden clothespins, left to dry by the sun and fresh air. If neighbors were thoughtful and courteous, the trash pits weren't fired up until evenings to protect the line items from soot and ash and smoke. When the laundry was taken in, the kids could then set up their base paths and their badminton nets. Balls, bats, gloves, and rackets came out for use, giving those same places a very different feel and a very different level of activity. I'm sorry if you can't visualize this. I sure can. As well as smelling the smoke from the smouldering trash fire, the freshly cut grass, the honeysuckle in bloom on the back fence. But it's time in this travelogue to look at the house itself, and I'll use the configuration, our configuration at forty four twenty five, to describe the standard interior of a primrose blueprint. To do so, let's head back around front to get started. Oh, and be sure to shut the gate, we don't want the dog to get out. Two doors provided entrances. A centered front door at the top of the porch stoop to the right of that patio I was talking about opened into a living room and also brought you face to face with a staircase that led into the attic. The bulk of the living room was to the left. Daylight came from a large front window facing west and a standard size north wall window with a sash and a lower lift frame. It was in that window that family most times put a fan or a window air conditioner. TVs found their location on any of the walls over the years, depending on the size of the TV and where the various antenna attachments, we called them rabbit ears, offered the best reception. Recliners, end chairs, love seats, and couches were also moved with the TV to allow the greatest number of the family members to view it with the fewest on the floor. One of two landline connections was attached to a rotary phone on the shelf of the bookcase that framed the flight of stairs that went up to the attic. Passed through the living room and the house's only bathroom was straight ahead. A very small thing with simply toilet, sink, and bathtub. But hey, with a family of seven, any port in a storm, you were lucky to get in. A small second root bedroom, maybe eight by eight, a hall closet for coats and jackets, hats, and caps were all to the left. If none of those rooms were your destination, then a right turn down the hall and you passed the door that led down to the basement. Then... Further on the right, the master bedroom, easily 10 foot by 10 foot. A linen closet faced you at the end of the hall. And finally, the kitchen was to your left, right across from that bedroom, where there was a range, prep board, sink, and drain board to your left. And just beyond them, on the wall was the second landline phone with a long extension cord that reached the dining table, the sink, and all corners of the room. Very, very functional. Refrigerator and pantry cabinet was on the right behind you now. Beyond the pantry was the second door in the home. That was the one off the driveway that you came into, and you stepped into a well, and then two steps up to the kitchen, and well, that's your tour of any of the primrose models of the American dream. The kitchen had been placed in the rear of the house, theoretically, so that busy domestic engineers could keep an eye on the brood while fixing supper for them, and the breadwinner, who would be arriving home about five o'clock, and expecting a home-cooked meal shortly thereafter. In those days, the whole family ate at least the evening meal together, so the dining room table was the size necessary for all of them to gather. You were called for dinner, expected to wash up for dinner, taking turns setting the table for dinner, and then sit down at the kitchen table that everyone could just barely fit around. Chores after dinner included clearing the table, scraping, rinsing, washing, and drying the dishes before the backyard games began in earnest. That same table was a place for settling in on long phone calls, doing crossword puzzles, listening to radio or records, or just enjoying a daytime cup of coffee, or a glass of sweetened iced tea, always with a cigarette or two. The front room was called the living room, but an awful lot of life went on in that back kitchen, believe me. Maple Downs was in some ways a step above the architectural designs of other rapidly built projects across Indianapolis. Most subdivisions had houses built on concrete slabs as ranch style single story abodes. Maple Downs boasted full basements and half attics, both unfinished at sale. Basements initially housed coal bins or heating oil tanks that fed the furnaces that heated the areas above them. Their noise, Heat, cleanliness, limited full family occupancy down there in the early times, but as those same furnaces were converted over to cleaner natural gas, it potentially doubled the living space with just a few aftermarket renovations. The basement then became a cool, but often humid retreat, still a respite for hot Midwest summers. Even a modestly upgraded basement gave Families a rumpus game TV room as well as an office or workshop for dad. Even a plumbed-in shower became a major bonus for hot, humid summers, although not so much in the frigid Hoosier winters. For some, this was the focus of expansion. But for many families, finishing the attic became a priority. The upstairs, though basically a dormitory style with rooms right and left, added two more rooms with spaces for two more beds each as more and more kids joined the parade of ages in the primrose populations. Four-foot side walls that then joined angled walls that in turn followed the pitch of the outside roof until it in turn reached a flat, narrow center ceiling about six foot six in height. There was nothing luxurious about these accommodations, but a large window exhaust fan running on high for a summer evening With its opposite window open and the accordion door at the top of the stairs closed, cooled it off real nicely when the kids retired there, however reluctant they were to sleep. They could read with a flashlight or listen by earpiece to either music or a distant baseball game until they nodded off and be very comfortable in their sleep. Both areas, basement and attic, proved to be attractive features to couples planning on doing their part in growing the anticipated and soon realized baby boomer generation. The basic floor plan footprint also allowed exterior walls to be bumped out, expanding kitchens and even creating second floor family or playrooms. Even with those options, the houses of Maple Downs looked similar if one looked right and left from any place on Primrose Avenue. But inside, the changes were as varied as the families who lived there over the time. So that's a brief examination of the hub of the Young Family Operations. Verbal offerings in future weeks will further flesh it out, but that's going to be it for today. Now that I've finally gotten around to it, I plan to offer a podcast every couple of weeks initially, available debuting on Thursdays at noon Mountain Time. And unlike today's walkthrough of the Young Family Abode, I'll recount events and adventures Seasons and holidays that moved us through our years and marked our time. But that's going to be it for today. Oh yeah, as we started, I invited you to get back with me if you had feedback, questions, or ideas. You can do so in a couple of ways. Email me at msyoung at or send a simple personal message to me on Facebook. For now, it's just Marty Young. I'll let you know if Primrose Chronicles warrants its own Facebook page, Instagram feed, or Twitter account down the road. If you're from the neighborhood or just beyond and have any kind of remembrance, let me know. If this series gets rolling, I may be inviting guests, family, and friends to come by to share their recollections as well. That could be a hoot. If you're not from this era or neighborhood but find yourself even mildly entertained by this content, I'd still love to hear from you. One, because the events of one block and another city are more likely replicated in several others. Same basic tales, only the names change to protect the guilty. And two, it'll confirm to me that there's a universal nature of these formative years for many of us. And how such an effort, as I'm attempting, might offer a common connection in a culture that seems much more concerned about our differences. I intend to keep this podcast basically devoid of opinion, religious, political, or otherwise, and I hope it simply becomes a landing spot for a few feel-good mind excursions. So let me know what you think after just this one soiree into my efforts. I can retool, rework, or simply retire from the effort if the feedback gets too brutal. Even if you have no connection with the northeast side of Indianapolis, and might be years from the decades that these yarns recount. I do hope they'll provide an escape from the reality that our world offers today. That's what I hope will be some of the charm of these podcasts, that they will take many down a lane of memories, even if it's not Primrose, where life was a holiday, life was a family, life is still a fond memory. Primrose Lane, uh, I mean Primrose Avenue, and these are its chronicles. If that is in any way the outcome, I'll be very pleased with my efforts and certainly humbled and grateful that you logged in. I look forward to our future chats, albeit they one-sided, but for now, just blessings.